Hello, and welcome to the Seeking Health Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer. With my wife, Anne Jessica, we were missionaries for seven years, until we stepped back in 2019 to seek health and re-examine our beliefs. Right now, I am a Christian, but not an evangelical, and my wife is an agnostic, and we are deconstructing and reconstructing together. Listen to some of our key episodes, such as Deconstructing Together, Domestic Abuse, I Am a Survivor, The Cult of ATI Part 1 and 2, and Dehumanized by Purity Culture. Join us on our journey as we seek health together, except we're not together this podcast. I'm flying solo with a very special guest, Sheila Grigoire. Am I saying that right, Grigoire? Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you say it Grigoire in, in the French, so, but Grigoire. Oh man, a Canadi- Canadians are the only one who actually know how to say it too. That's hilarious. Yeah, you can tell you're Canadian with me. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually... I learned French and I, I worked, I was a missionary in Quebec. So I get really confused when people say okay. déjà vu, mm-hmm. like, because I, right. I want to say it in French. And so anyways, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, you wrote a great book called The Great Sex Rescue. Um, and actually, I'm going to keep reading this or else if I go off script, it's going to, bad things will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's meet Sheila Grigoire who along with Rebecca Lindenbach and Joanna Sawatsky, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Work at the blog To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, which is the largest single blogger uh, dedicated to marriage, um, who all are intent on figuring out how couples can achieve great sex and fill- fulfilling relationships. After years of giving out health advice, Sheila, the founder of the blog, was perplexed that so many women keep having the same problems. And so together they use their unique gifts and skills to conduct the largest sex and marriage survey ever done to date of Christian women and figured out why sex is so often such a source of tension in our marriage, surveying over 20,000 women. The results are out in their book, The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught and How to Recover When What God Intended. They show which common evangelical teachings have hurt women's sexuality and how to reframe those teachings to match up with what God really intended for passion, intimacy, and even great sex. Plus, they've got incredible stories of some of the resources that have spread horrible messages and how this has affected women. And you sure do have some good examples in your book of some of the terrible teachings. And I mean, I read some of those books 10, 15 years ago and it's like, oh yeah, sure. Uh, but when you read them now with 15 years of marriage behind you, you it's like, who is saying this to anybody? Um, it, it does not sound like good advice on this side of things. Um, so let me ask you what I was raised with, because I was raised very much in the evangelical scene. I was a missionary, I was a pastor, did all the things I was, I mean, going back, I was, I was youth group president for a while. Like I was very involved in, in sharing the message and kind of the basics that I received. And that I also passed on was. Um, sex is precious. You got to save for marriage, which means you don't talk about it. You don't do anything. You don't think about it before marriage. Uh, just so you know, we'll have a separate time for the men and for the women in the men's group or the, the teen group. We're going to talk about pornography and how you have such a desire to look at pornography and your mind is so full of lust and you need to shut that business down. Um, and here's some resources and, you know, put some net nanny on your computer or whatever like that. You got to shut that down and you got to not look at women with lust and you got to learn to bounce your eyes. So when you see a beautiful woman, just look away, 
You got to look away. Don't look at the woman or else if you look at her, just keep your eyes and neck up. You know, you got, you can't be looking at anything else. And um, you know, if, if anything happens, you know, feeling lust or whatever, like you're sinning, like you might as well be raping her is, is literally the message I received. Mm-hmm. And the women are over there and they're, well, I, you know, I wasn't in those meetings, obviously, but they're being told, look, men love sex, men desire sex. You got to put the brakes on and uh, you know, got to save that virginity for marriage. Otherwise, you know, it'll just, your whole life will be down the toilet. Probably nobody will want to marry you. Um, I mean, obviously it wasn't said just like this, but these messages were portrayed. And, uh, but once you get married, you got to give it to him. You got to give it to him a lot because he's got this problem. It's every man's battle is this loss and pornography thing. So you got to give it, you got to, you got to put out as, as the kids are saying, or they were saying. Um, so what is so terrible about these sorts of messages? I mean, these are kind people that did this and, and kind people that were saying these sorts of things. What, what could possibly be wrong with saying these sorts of messages? Mm-hmm. And notice how in everything that you just said, you didn't say anything about intimacy. Sex is just something that guys are going to want all of the time. And so sex becomes dangerous. Mm-hmm. Sex is dangerous before you're married. And that makes women dangerous because they sure are. are just gonna they're they're a danger to your purity and then for women sex is dangerous because if you do it beforehand you're going to lose your most precious treasure and afterwards if you don't do it enough you're going to lose your husband mm-hmm. so sex is always talked about in terms of these terrible terrible things that are going to happen and it's not talked about as something which is life-giving and as something which is beautiful. It's just talked about as something which can end your life, can wreck your life in any of a number of ways. <laughs> and then we wonder why people have issues with sex. <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. You say in your book that um, women who, re- who receive these messages are more likely to have um, 59% less aroused during sex, 59% more likely to have obligation sex. Why do you think that is? How does, how do those messages connect mm-hmm. with, with sex? And, and actually before you, you go there, um, because some of these people, some people listening, this will be their first podcast. And I just wanted to mention, we have podcasts before this where um, my wife and I just in our journey of deconstruction and trying to figure out what's going on, uh, have talked very openly about um, our difficulties early on in our marriage. And so there's uh, several podcasts about purity culture and about sex. And basically, you know, um, our sex life, uh, you know, we were told that marriage would be awesome and that the honeymoon would be awesome, but it basically wasn't. Uh, it was very difficult mm-hmm. for us. Is that common or were we weird? Because we felt very weird. What we were told is you keep it for marriage. We did. Keep your mind pure. I did. Uh, Don't look at pornography. I didn't. Um, Very much. Um, But, you know, I was fighting the battle. You know, I was was in the battle and and staying relatively pure, I would say, at the time. Um, And the, the, the honeymoon was not great at all. It was very, very difficult. Um, and so why do you think that is? I think that's very common. In fact, in another survey that I did a couple of years ago, I looked specifically at honeymoons and only about 20% of, of Christians have good honeymoons. Everybody else has either really, really rotten or else pretty bad, you know? (laughs) So (laughs) 
I think I think it's quite common to have difficult honeymoons. Um, but what happens? You- and here's what here's what we did with our survey, just so people can understand. So we asked twenty thousand women to rate their marital satisfaction and then to rate their sexual satisfaction. And this was a seriously invasive long survey. Like people told us everything. We asked all kinds of seriously invasive questions. All right. And then after they had told us how things were right now, we gave them a whole series of different evangelical teachings on sex and asked if they had ever been taught them and if they had ever believed them. And from those answers, we were able to correlate, okay, if people believe this, does this help or hurt? their sex life. Mm. And we were able to measure all that. So we identified really four key teachings that wrecked it the most, wrecked sex the most. There's other teachings that also have negative impacts, but there's four big teachings that, that wreck sex the most. And um, you're talking about purity culture. That certainly is very dangerous. And um, one of the beliefs that we found was really um, bad was boys, this idea that boys are going to push girls' sexual boundaries you know, boys want sex. They can't, they can't help themselves. Um, Shanti Feldon in her book for young women only said 82% of boys feel little ability or little responsibility to stop in a makeout situation. And so girls, if you don't want to go all the way, it's better to not even start. Like that's legitimizing date rape. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I disagree both with her survey question and her conclusions from her survey. So I don't actually think that 82% is accurate whatsoever. But to say that a boy has little ability to stop, excuse me. <laughs> and yet this is what we were telling teenage girls. Yeah. Um, and so that internalizing that message really stops teenage girls from being able to be integrated with their bodies. That's a big part of it because if you go through your dating life and your engaged life, you're kissing, you're making out. And all you're thinking the whole time is, is he getting too carried away? Do I need to stop it now? Is he breathing too hard? Like you're never actually experiencing Mm. it. You're thinking about it. So it's almost like you step outside your body to watch what's happening and you train yourself to stay completely in control so that you can stop it whenever it gets dangerous. And then what happens is you get married and you have no ability to reintegrate with your body and actually experience stuff. You still feel like you're like, I have to, I have to watch what's going on. I I'm separate from myself. So that's a big, that's a big thing for women. We think, um, so definitely purity culture plays a big part, but it's not only purity culture. It's because purity culture is what we tell to single people. There's also what we tell to married people and just how Can we frame you, sex in general. Some people are telling me that purity culture is a new term for them. How would you define purity culture? Hmm. Sure. So there, there's what I would call a biblical sexual ethic is this. A biblical sexual ethic is that God made sex to be in a marriage, committed marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And that's what it's supposed to be. Purity culture isn't that. <laughs> Purity culture is all kinds of things layered on top of that. So you can have a biblical sexual ethic, but not have purity culture. Because what purity culture says is um, your main worth is in your adherence to a biblical sexual ethic. Mm-hmm. So your main worth is in your virginity. Your main, your main goal is to stay pure until you're married. And um, there's all kinds of extra rules for that that go around dating and that, that shame any kind of relationship, that shame a lot of physical contact. Um, and it's a very rules-based approach to the whole thing. And that's where stuff got seriously messed up. Okay. And there was also a big 
publishing boom that happened uh, about 20 years ago that had a whole bunch of books of yes. people that claimed to be experts in and there was some government funds into that. You can research some of the, the what is it, the ring thing, the silver ring thing. There's, there was government involvement yeah. and money and, and it gets, it's an interesting yeah. rabbit hole. Um, but thank you for that quick definition of what purity culture is. Um, can I let you continue where you were? What were the other four? Yeah, um, so, so that's what, but I think the one thing that, that, is over all of these different beliefs that really wreck sex for women is this idea, which I think is best summed up by Emerson Egrich in his book, Love and Respect, which is probably the one of the best-selling marriage books of the last 15 years, certainly the best-selling marriage studies in churches. Um, Five Love Languages has sold more copies, but Love and Respect has been the bestseller other than that for, for almost 20 years now. Wow. Um, and he said, if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have. Wow. And a husband has a need for physical release through sexual intimacy. And so in his mind, men need sex and women don't. And the definition of sex is a husband's ejaculation. Mm -hmm. And this is somehow seen as normal, which I find very bizarre, but okay. Like I, cause that's how this whole thing got started is um, I had been writing and blogging about sex for years and I had never actually read another Christian marriage book because I didn't want to plagiarize anybody. And right. then one day it was January, 2019. I read love and respect because I saw this big kerfuffle on Twitter and I was curious and I'd had the book in my cupboard. I just never read it. And I turned to the sex chapter and that's what he said. Sex is for men. Women should give it to them because it doesn't take very long. You should minister to your husband sexually as unto Jesus Christ. If you don't give him sex, he'll have an affair. You need to understand the struggle with lust and a husband will go into satanic attack if he's not given release often enough. And that was the entire satanic message. Attack. Yeah. I, had, mm -hmm. I, had, I read the book, but I missed that part or hadn't thought of it in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the entire, nothing, nothing about the fact that women can feel pleasure too. Nothing about the fact that men should endeavor to make sex pleasurable for wives. In fact, he, he says that why would you deprive him of something which takes so little time? So it's, you know, he's, he's touting that sex doesn't take any time at all, which means he's not really emphasizing the woman's pleasure, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, um, you know, there's just, there's nothing about intimacy. There's nothing about sex being a deep knowing of two people, a deep connection. It literally is only the husband's physical release. Hmm. And I read that and I was like, no way. Like, is this what our Christian resources actually say? And that's when we, we started this project and we started reading all of the bestsellers and we were just absolutely astounded and dismayed at how shallow a view of sex everything was it was like mm -hmm. he needs sex he needs ejaculation you need to give it to him or all kinds of bad things will happen and her experience is just secondary maybe it's a bonus but it's not integral to the main event yeah and that as you say that that's that's what that's the word that comes to me is shallow or almost like first tier like i mean i'm trying to think how much i want to share but I'll, I'll share i mean it's this is what we do in our podcast but i mean early on it was like well what is sex we'd been taught nothing not none of us were taught anything you know i had looked at some pornography but i knew that was unrealistic um so my main frame of reference was biblical so it's like well you make babies you know 
Uh, and so, mm-hmm. but she felt used. It was short. It was cumbersome. It was like, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't even all that aroused because it was like, it was just about getting, you know, making babies, basically basic missionary pose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, 2.0, we kind of figured out, Hey, we, there's something called a clitoris makes it nice. You know, mm-hmm. we, we can, we can move on. It doesn't have to be a 10 minute affair. We can, we can drag this out and then she enjoys it. And when she's enjoying it, Hey, I'm enjoying it a lot more. And then eventually you kind of mm-hmm. move to a stage where actually, you know, we're having so much fun with the other stuff. It doesn't really matter. You know, if, if we are making babies, you know, that mm-hmm. there's, there, there's just so mm-hmm. much, you know, you can have so much pleasure in one another when you start to communicate, communication is very, very difficult for sex, especially if you've been raised like yep. this and, you know, yep. you haven't been modeled how to talk about your desires and how to talk about sex. Um, and, and most sex talk is cloaked in shame. And so when you're trying to talk about sex, you feel shame instantly for desiring anything. Um, but once you start communicating, actually, I kind of like that. And usually the response is, you like that? That's not what I like because you know you're you're kind of opposite as man and woman. Mm-hmm. But eventually you start communicating those things, and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you get to th- you know further. Um, I think there's a, a verse in in Ecclesiastes about Mount or uh, Song of Solomon's about mountains of, of delight. You know, you get you get to the next mountain, right? Mm-hmm. And it feels like a lot of these these um, these relationship books are written by people that haven't made it past you know, 1.0, they haven't figured it out as far as like, actually, this isn't just about you. And if you, if this becomes a dance between the two of you, actually it gets better for both of you. And they're kind of just like, got to make babies. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's sad that these people are in the driver's seat of giving people advice when it seems like they're not really experts uh, in their own right. And that's one of our pet peeves. And that's, that's one of the reasons that we wanted to do such a large survey. And um, we've now been approved for submission to peer review. We're working with a number of different universities and oh, cool. some partnering partnerships to get, to get our research peer reviewed. Cause we're just calling for the church to step, step it up a notch. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be just because you're a pastor, you're allowed to write a book on sex because Amen. having an MDiv doesn't mean you know anything about sex no. um, as is evidenced from our bestsellers. But you know, um, what one of the big findings that we that we discovered was our orgasm gap. And what I mean by that is that other studies have found that roughly 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm during a sexual encounter, but the equivalent number for women is only about 48%. So we have a 47 point orgasm gap. And yet the main message in Christian books is do it more. Mm-hmm. It's not make it good for her. Mm-hmm. And to me, if you've got a 47 point orgasm gap, that means that she's already not enjoying things that much. Mm-hmm. And yet that doesn't seem to bother a lot of these authors all because like power of a praying wife says, you know, if he doesn't get released, his eyes will get cloudy. So give him release. You know, he'll have a difficult time. Um, uh, every man's battle says the same thing you know, if he goes for more than a few days, it's just too difficult for him. So do the right thing and give him release. Like they keep talking about sex as if it's about release. And yet she's never allowed to get release, I guess. But, you know, Mm -hmm. if you look at the orgasm rates for women, only 39% of women who do regularly orgasm, orgasm through intercourse alone. 
the vast majority of women need something more than intercourse. And most women find other things, a more reliable route to orgasm than intercourse. And so if we're defining sex as merely intercourse, we're already leaving her experience out, mm-hmm. you know, because God didn't take the clitoris and stick it in the vagina, like he put it on the outside so that it gets maximum stimulation from him doing other things to her, like mm-hmm. that don't necessarily give him direct pleasure. And that's right. the way God designed our bodies. And so we need to work with God's design and realize there's a reason for that. And that maybe it's supposed to be about men serving women for a while. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's ironic that there's so much teaching about, about women serving men, but the thought of a man serving a woman and not getting direct pleasure, which has not been my experience, uh, not receiving. I mean, it's exciting. Right. Um, But that thought seems foreign to a lot of these books and, the other thing that seemed that just seems odd is like there have been times when the intimacy hasn't been there and it has seemed forced. That has not been appealing to me. It, I want to yeah. have that connection. And I, I'm, I'm just wondering what's going on. Uh, maybe it's prying, but I, I just wonder what's going on with these relationships where they want more of that, you know, more sex without, yeah. without, and it just, it, it feels it feels off. It feels two-dimensional when, when the, the connection isn't there. I, I want to reestablish the connection, find out what's good for you so that we're both having a good time. Yeah. You know, the most um, harmful message that we found was this idea that a woman is obligated to give her husband sex when he wants it. And that's throughout our literature. Um, the 72 hour rule that you have to give him sex every 72 hours Ooh. or he'll lust or whatever um and the yeah if you're a woman you've heard it in women's bible studies and books for women yeah and i tried to we tried to find where it came from this is the funniest thing so we did all this medical stuff like is there something magical about hour 73 that makes men more uncomfortable or grumpier and nothing in the medical literature and then we finally traced the 72 hour rule back to um a book james dobson wrote in 1977 um, where he just declared it, but there was no basis for it. And everybody has repeated it since. I have you know, heard that same story says, about so many facts. Yeah. People will say like, yeah. oh, there was this fact and everybody knows it and it's true, but like, where does it come from? And then they, they find out that James Dobson just willed it into existence 40 years ago. And yeah. Now, now we did, we did find that couples that have more frequent sex tend to do better on all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm a big believer in like, you know, sex several times a week, if you can want it. And if that's good for you, like, I'm not saying that frequent sex is a bad thing, but what I am saying is as soon as you make it an obligation, you change the nature of sex. Yeah. Because when you say sex is an obligation, then sex is no longer about two people knowing each other. Because if it's an obligation, then her needs don't matter. His needs are the only ones that matter. Yeah. And if her needs don't matter, then it's not two people coming together. It's just him. And um, what we found with the obligation sex message is um, when women believe that their chance of experiencing primary sexual pain or vaginismus, which is uh, sexual dysfunction, which hardly anybody knows about, even though it's more common than erectile dysfunction and more devastating, really. Um, It's when the walls of the vaginal uh, wall contract to make penetration painful, if not impossible. 
And we found that 22% of women have experienced this 7% to the extent that, um, uh, sex is impossible or penetration is impossible. And that's roughly two to two and a half times the rate of the general population. So this is a problem Christians have much oh, so more than the Christian general population. Problem. Yes. And that's one of the big things we were trying to figure out in our study is why, because this has been well known in the literature for like 50, 60 years. If you look at gynecological journals from the early seventies, they'll talk about religious conservative women. If you talk to any pelvic floor physiotherapist, they'll tell you most of their patients are religious conservatives. Um, wow. and, and what we found is that the obligation sex message is the big culprit here. Because when women believe it, their chances of experiencing vaginismus increase to almost the same statistical effect as if they had been abused. Wow. Sorry, what, tell so, me again what the message is that, that caused that. To tell a woman you are obligated to give your husband sex when he wants it. Hmm. And 43% of women who grew up in Christian churches report being taught that. 39% believed it at the point where they oh. were married. Um, so this is, this is quite a widespread belief. Um, mm. and when you believe it really bad things happen, it's like our bodies, our bodies experience that belief as trauma. Um, because that belief is almost the same as abuse. It's saying you don't matter. He has the right to use you however he wants. Yeah. Well, it is abuse. And yeah. And, and, but, but the reason that I bring that up is to circle back to what you were saying about how it's not fun for you. If no. she's like, if there's no intimacy, if she's not there. And that's what we found too. We, we did, after we did our survey, we did a lot of focus groups with, with uh, quite a few women who had experienced breakthroughs sexually in their marriage or who had, who had had sexual pain and now didn't. And, and all of them told us stories of how their husbands were not the ones who taught them this stuff. Their husbands mm -hmm. were not pressuring them. Um, it, it was stuff that they had internalized from a lot of these Christian books and from women's conferences and things like that. And when they sat down and talked to their husbands about it, their husbands were upset. Like they, they said, I don't want you to give me duty sex. Like, I don't yeah. want that. I only want us to ever do stuff that you want to do. And when their husbands proved that to them, like um, there was one woman who had had vaginismus for like 20 years. And, and her husband said, look, if we're in the middle of sex and you want to stop for whatever reason, you need to tell me and we will stop. And he proved that to her over the next few months. And she said, it felt like my body physically changed. Mm -hmm. Like suddenly she was able to become responsive. She was able, you know, to orgasm for the first time in a few decades, her sexual pain started getting a lot better until she's, I think she's pretty much over it now, but that was the big shift was realizing I am not obligated. This is something that's for both of us. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, we had talked in our previous podcast about, like my wife is not a Christian now. Uh, she was raised very conservative in ATI, Bill Gothard circles and mm -hmm. uh, pastor's daughter and just had both barrels. And um, about this time last year, she was really experiencing a lot of that stuff. And um, it really, she read a few books on purity culture and it like, it, it affected her body remembering these things. Like she had migraines, she felt sick. She was like, she just like, I could just see the, the turmoil in her um, and the pain she was experiencing. And uh, like, it just makes me so mad. Like these teachers that, that thought they were so smart and, and published these books, you know, um, and they were on the top of the world for a while, but they, 
I mean, as Paul said, uh, wishing to be teachers, although they know nothing about the things which they make confident pronouncements about. Um, but what I, I said, like, you know, honey, like, let's just take a sex break. Like, I'm not gonna, I can see that this is where you're struggling. I don't want to put any mm -hmm. pressure on you. And I just really assured her, like, I'm fine. And we had, we had, I want to talk about masturbation in a bit, but we had figured out at a certain point, like masturbation is fine. Like I'm not thinking about other people. Like I'm thinking about you and we had, and she was comfortable with that. I was comfortable with that. So I said, look, like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to look at pornography. Like it, it's okay. You know? Um, yeah. and, and just take the guilt off, you know, it's fine. Um, but I want to give her that, that freedom. And I said, you get a month off. Like it's terrible, but like, I, I, I put a time and I said like, and about like a few, a few weeks in, she said, no, I think, we, um, let's have it. And, and I was like, well, it's supposed to be a whole month. And she's like, you don't get to make the rules. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> but like, it's been, it's been amazing to see as you, like I was starting to tear up as you were talking about this woman and her, her change. And it, like, there's nothing like, it's not even sexual. It's I'm seeing that freedom in her body, you know, like that, that freedom to be herself and to love herself and to own her own body. Like, like it's, it's as though we're in the olden days and somebody like has this child and they betrothed her to me. And now she is my slave and I can do whatever. And I'm like, I don't want that, you know, but there's this, this teaching and this mentality that somehow has come along. And it's like, how does that make her feel? How does that make me feel? What if we were just equal? that that's yeah. you know and, and and that it changes the dynamic and i feel like it it does make such a huge difference in her body not just in the sex but in all of life because yeah. who wants to be a slave in the most intimate part of of their being that's just that's terrible yeah. well what yeah and one of the things we said in 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 the great sex rescue is that if sex is supposed to be this intimate knowing, then as soon as you make it an obligation or duty, it's not that it's not a knowing or, or it's not that it's not intimate. It actually goes further than that because it becomes a rejection of the person because if sex is not an intimate knowing, then sex is actually saying, I actively don't want to know you during this act. And that's where it gets so scary because I think that's what's happened in a lot, in a lot of this marriage teaching. Like for instance, um, in some of the worst examples, Kevin Lehman, who's a really prolific evangelical author, and he's actually got a PhD in psychology. So he has no excuse for this. Um, but in sheet music, he said that her period was a difficult time for the husband. Um, and so it's a good idea for a wife to give oral sex or a hand job during her period so that he can withstand pornography. And I mean, calling her period a difficult time for the husband is highly problematic on so many levels. Like, but have you ever had cramps? You know, <laughs> um, like, yeah, she's bleeding from her vagina and you're worried about yourself. But, um, but that's the way it's framed is. And then in another instance in the book, he says, if she's postpartum, if she has heavier periods, or if she's simply not feeling well, then she can offer him a hand job instead. And so it's like, okay, so you've got a wife who's sick and she's supposed to give him a hand job. You've got a wife who just pushed a baby out of her 
and she's supposed to give him a handjob. Like, why is his ejaculation the most important consideration here? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that's what we see over and over again in Christian literature is that men cannot be expected to wait. They cannot be expected to with, withhold or with, you know, to not ejaculate every few days because there's no way that a man can do that. And that just makes women feel really dirty. Like you don't, you're not interested in me at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question. And by before, the way, I must say, okay. I don't, I don't believe most men feel that way. I, I, cause I no. often get accused of man bashing for talking about this stuff. I'm not a man basher. I'm the exact opposite. <laughs> I think men yeah. are good. And I think the way men are portrayed in these books, atrocious. I think so too. And, you know, I grew up with these books and I was told, well, this is how men are. Like I actually saw Steve Masterson. He, he gave a conference at a little conference at our church one time. And like, I met him in person. I remember him talking about how it takes, you know, three days for your testicles to fill up. And, and at that point you feel a lot more, you know, horny or whatever, you know, which is basically true. And it was a little bit helpful for me at the time to think, okay, that's why I'm, you know, more horny at that time. Um, but along with that, he also said, you know, you have a penis, but you have peeing rights only. So you, you know, you, you cannot ever ejaculate on your own. So as a single guy, you're, you're out of luck. Uh, it's going to come out eventually. And then once you're married, you know, your wife has to fulfill that, you know, otherwise, um, you know, you're, you're going to be tempted beyond, um, where was I going with this? So you had mentioned earlier that uh, it's a bit of a pet peeve that, um, you know, the, these teachers often don't have their facts straight. And that I just want to briefly say that has become a huge pet peeve of mine that um, so many of the books that that formed me around sex were written by people that knew that were not experts in their field. There are sexologists. I just learned this this year. There are people that study sex. That's what they do. They study sex and they're not perverts and they're not weird mm-hmm. people. They're just scientists that study sex. So why didn't I, why wasn't I handed a book from a sexologist or why these people that write on these topics, you know, because it's gotta be Christian. Why wouldn't a Christian read the research of sexologists and then translate that to me instead of just going off of, it it just seems as though some of these, these people went off their anecdotal experience. Hey, this is what worked for me. This is what should work for you. Or sometimes it almost felt like, they were preaching a sermon or writing a book because they they wanted their wife to do something for them. And that became the message for everybody. Uh, I don't, I can't confirm, but it kind of seemed every once in a while, like maybe you two just need to have a conversation instead of this being a sermon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did want to ask. Yeah, I, you, I often, I, I often find when I read the books, I, I have to stop myself from trying to read between the lines and figuring out what their sex life is like. Cause sometimes you read stuff and you're like, okay, I know what you're struggling with. That's just not right. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, um, one of the academic papers that we're working on is taking a look at, uh, we have a 12 point rubric of healthy sexuality teaching okay. and that we put together based on peer reviewed research and our survey results. And we were going to get that rubric published. Um, 
but to do that, we looked at the quality of research that was in our bestsellers. So we looked at the 10 best-selling marriage books, the six iconic sex books, three marriage books didn't really talk about sex. So we excluded them. So we had 13 Christian books of those 13 Christian books. They referenced 11 peer reviewed journal articles, not wow. 11 each 11 in total. Wow. And several books mentioned several. So most books had none, like not a single peer reviewed journal article. Wow. Cause you know, I don't, I I'm with you. I don't think someone has to be a sexologist to write a sex book, but you darn well better cite research if you're not, yeah. you know, I've always cited a lot of research and now we've done our own. Um, but here's just a really common one. Everybody talks about how men have strife, men have libido, women don't. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's only like 19% of marriages. She has the higher sex drive. 23% of marriages it's shared quite often in any given marriage, you'll go through periods where it flips, <laughs> mm -hmm. but to talk about how men always have libido and women don't misses out the story in so many marriages. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we tend to like to portray things in stereotypes rather than just give yeah. principles for couples to work through, no matter how it works out in your own individual situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it definitely seems as though there is a stereotype. And I mean, this word biblical gets batted around. I had, I, mm -hmm. I put a tweet out a few days ago. I don't think it, it connected with people, but you know, the word biblical is not copyrighted. Anybody can say yeah. something's biblical. And yep. if they say it and you believe it, that settles it. You know, like that's, that's the end of the discussion. If, if you say this is a biblical marriage, let me tell you about it and they quote a few Bible verses in there, then you're going to believe that everything they say is biblical yeah. marriage. But I mean, I could fill a page of this notebook with the number of uh, verses in the Bible directly about marriage. It doesn't give a lot of specifics. So if you're going for specifics, yeah. you got to go somewhere. And if you're not going to the medical research, you're going to your personal anecdotal experience or your, your unexamined bias, mm -hmm. biases as a, a Western white guy or who knows where, you know? And so... It's just become so frustrating to me to realize so much of our lives was based on, you know, Christian counseling and Christian teaching, which was based on some guy who happened to get a, a book deal who said, this is what biblical teaching is when yeah. really he had no right to say that. Can I give you an example of, sure. from a book that actually wasn't that bad? Okay. So this was not one of the terrible books. Um, and so, and, and I think maybe that's why this anecdote made me so sad, but Tim Keller, who I don't agree with on a lot of issues, but what he said about sex was actually fairly innocuous. I think he, he scored neutral in our rubric. So neither harmful nor helpful, just neutral. But he had this one anecdote that he said where um, at the beginning of their marriage, when they were, they were aiming to make her feel good too, and it often became a pass-fail thing. And then he said, and sometimes when it was over, I would ask her, how it was for her. And if she said it just hurt, I would be devastated and she would be too. And so we learned that it was more important to think about what we could give to the other person than what we would receive. And we stopped aiming for her orgasm as much. And it's like that anecdote has a whole bunch of extremely dysfunctional things in it that he's not even identifying as dysfunctional. First of all, he's only asking her afterwards how she is and she's saying, well, it hurt. So she wasn't speaking up while it was happening to say that yeah. it hurt. And he gave no, 
he gave no explanation that vaginismus is a thing like to throw away to have that throwaway line that it hurt without mentioning vaginismus when most women do not have a word for it you know we all know what erectile dysfunction is but in couples under the age of 40 vaginismus is far more common focus on the family doesn't have a single reference to it on their entire website they have multiple ones to erectile dysfunction you know gospel coalition not a single reference to it but this is a really big problem. And so he, he threw that line out without explaining it. And then he said that we just learned not to aim for her orgasm. Now, if they're a couple where she orgasms 60% of the time, that's probably good advice. You know, like, <laughs> like, cause sometimes you can get in this, this situation and women can be especially frustrated too. Cause sometimes you start having sex and you realize, you know what, this just isn't going to happen for me tonight, but I'm still enjoying things. He's enjoying things. I'm fine keeping going. But if he keeps trying to make you orgasm and he takes a long time, that's you really mad. Cause like, no, I'm trying to give you a gift and you're not taking it. So for some women that can actually mm-hmm. be frustrating, right? So saying like giving women permission, cause sometimes we have too much on our minds. We have hormonal stuff going on, whatever, right? It's not going to happen tonight, but I'm still having a good time. So that could be good advice. But what if she's a woman who's never reached orgasm and she reads that anecdote and they learn, oh, I'm selfish for wanting orgasm. Or what if they're a couple that he's never done any foreplay or tried to figure out what foreplay is? And she learns I'm selfish for asking because I should just be thinking about what I'm giving. What exactly is she getting from sex where she isn't orgasming ever, you know, and yet he didn't elaborate. So in their marriage, that may very well have been good, but for most Mm -hmm. couples reading it, that's entirely the wrong advice. And yet there was no recognition that they should not be having that anecdote. And so that was, that was just one of those anecdotes where it just made me really sad that he put that in there and didn't elaborate. Yeah. And then it, you don't read those sorts of books in the same way that you would, would read perhaps a scientific journal as saying, well, this is one person's experience. This is even one research. This is one survey. Mm-hmm. Let's compare and contrast that with something else. The, the tendency is, oh, if it's biblical teaching, that's that's the truth. And this is Tim Keller, so it's yeah. And he know. and he made he put in Bible verses to say how we all should be giving and thinking about what we're giving, not thinking about what we're receiving. So it's selfish to think about your own orgasm. Mm-hmm. And yet he's still getting his orgasm, right? Ninety five percent of men. So even though he's saying this, we know he's still getting the orgasm. So it's only her who's who's being told she's selfish. It's like yeah. wow. Talk to me about consent. This is a word that has occupied a very small percentage of my vocabulary. Oh yeah, I know what consent is. Sure, there was a, you know, when the Me Too came out, there were conservative guys that would kind of, or memes that would kind of make fun of, um, oh, this is getting out of hand, you know? Like, to how do you even do mm-hmm. consent? You know, if she's, you know, if you both drink alcohol, apparently it's rape, you know, whatever. So in conservative circles, sometimes they mock this, but I haven't heard somebody you know, until recently um, really emphasize within our circles, what is consent? And I realized recently, I have never in my life heard a sermon on consent. Never. It's, it's, it hasn't come up. Yeah. Yep. Heard a lot of other things about sex, yep. but consent is not there. So can you tell me what consent looks like in marriage? Yeah. You know, on that 12 point rubric of healthy sexuality, that is the measure that our book scored the worst on. In fact, of the 13 sex books we looked at, not a single one had a robust discussion of consent. Mm. John Gottman, 
Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, which is the best-selling secular marriage book, had several pages on what consent looks like. Excellent discussion. The Christian books did not. Now, Boundaries in Marriage, I need to say, did a very good job of talking about how you can't manipulate or coerce people into doing things you want them to do. They just didn't necessarily do it only about what it would look like in the bedroom. So, I mean, you could certainly take that from boundaries in marriage. So I actually gave them a very good mark on that, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Um, But I think the problem with talking about consent in Christian circles is that before marriage, consent's not a thing because you shouldn't be having sex. And then after marriage, consent isn't a thing because you need to give him sex. And so consent is just never a thing. That's the way, that's the way we've seen it. Um, And a lot of books that we looked at had anecdotes of marital rape and didn't portray this as a bad thing. Wow. Um, uh, This is just a throwaway line from his needs, her needs, which is a, which has been a bestseller for 30 years. Um, and I, he, I believe he, re, he removed this line from the 2011 edition, but it had already been out for 25 years before that. But he said, as one 32-year-old executive put it, I feel like I'm always begging her or even raping her, but I can't help it. I need to make love. And raping someone and making love do not feel like the same thing. No. And yet there was no explanation that raping your wife is wrong. Um. And that rape doesn't always look like someone kicking and screaming. Although Tim, Tim LaHaye in The Act of Marriage actually did portray a rape like that, where he's holding her down, kicking and screaming. And then later he describes the rapist as equally unhappy as his rape victim because neither of them ever figured sex out. Wow. So he says the rapist is equally unhappy as the victim, which is just disgusting. Um, and that anecdote is still in that book. That book's been out for like almost 50 years. Nobody ever took that anecdote out despite all the additions it's been through. Um, you know, but, but it's not only someone kicking and screaming. It's also, if you feel like if I don't have sex with him, he's going to get grumpy or he's going to be worse to the kids or, um, he's going to watch porn or he's going to have an affair. Like basically a lot of our marriage advice is legitimizing marital rape. It's saying, if you don't give him sex and he watches porn, it's your fault. Yeah. Which is another one of the teachings, which we found is really highly problematic. Um, I, I got a letter recently from a woman, an email from a woman who says, if, if we're having company over, I have to make sure I give him sex earlier in the day or else he'll embarrass me in front of friends and he'll be really grumpy. Or if we're going to go to the beach as a family, I have to make sure we have sex the night before. Or if there's something important I have to talk to him about, I have to have sex first or else he's grumpy. Like that's actually a form of coercion. If you have to have sex in order to get him to, yeah, that's coercion. If he, yeah. Like if you, if you have to have sex with him in order to get him to behave in a proper way towards you, that is coercion. And that, that means consent is not there. Yeah. Yeah. How does, I want to talk about lust, like teachings on lust and mental purity in a second here. Um, How does consent, I realize as I'm asking this, that you're not a lawyer and probably won't won't want to enter into this space, but um, when does consent become illegal? Because that's not, that's another thing we don't talk about in the church is, Hey, there are some actions that are Mm -hmm. illegal and, and justifiably. So this is a Mm -hmm. criminal action. 
Mm-hmm. Well, in Canada, in the criminal code in Canada, actually having sex with someone who's asleep is 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 illegal. Um, so even if, like, even if you have given your spouse permission to do that, technically it is illegal. It's kind of something lawyers laugh about in Canada now because, like, no one's ever going to prosecute that. But you know, but technically that. That is now under the criminal code here. And yeah, I, I think that r- marital rape is one of those difficult things to prosecute, but it certainly, it certainly is like if someone uses a sex toy on you and you deliberately told them not to, um, even if you orgasm from that, that's something people don't understand too. Like you can yeah. orgasm, you can become aroused by something you didn't consent to. Um, so your own bot, like that doesn't mean there was consent present. So. Mm-hmm. Which as I understand uh, can feel like a further violation, like you're taking control mm-hmm. of something that I did not give you permission to, to take control of. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I'd love to have this conversation with somebody that knows what they're talking about, because uh, so much of my teenage years was overshadowed by this terrible cloud of shame and guilt, because what I was told was if you feel any attraction towards a woman that is lust, and having lust is the same as anything you're, you're imagining in your mind. So if you're imagining having sex with somebody or, or if you have some attraction, that's basically like having sex with her. She didn't consent to that. So you connect the dots. I'm basically raping, you know, everybody that I see. Mm-hmm. You're a young teenage boy, you, you got your hormones. Nobody's talking to you about this stuff. Um, you don't know what to do with it. Um, and where this connects with rape and with, um, with consent and, and why I want to make that transition is because I feel as though there's like lust makes such a dark cloud. It, it obscures discussions mm-hmm. about consent because there is, mm-hmm. and, and, and this is something that I deal with on my social media platforms because I've, I'm a survivor of various forms of, of abuse and, and I want to make it, and, and, you know, recovered from complex PTSD and post-traumatic stress and various things. And I want to make it really clear that there are some things that will damage people potentially for the rest of their lives. And we as a church need to stand up for those victims. And when they are experiencing post-traumatic stress, we need to be there to defend them and, and to protect them and, um, and not just say, well, you know, he had needs. No. Mm-hmm she has needs Mm -hmm. right now. And that's the focus. And I feel like the church has done a terrible job of this. And I think that the, at the root of the problem is seeing, uh, and just curious if you agree with this, but seeing lust as a 10 out of 10. Well, now you can't, you don't have the capacity anymore to say, well, actually rape is a 10 out of 10, you know, um, sexually abusing a child is, you know, 11 out of 10 lust you know is maybe a one out of ten you know if you're progressing if you're as as you mentioned in the book some of these anecdotes about masturbating in the car while watching joggers i mean that's maybe a five out of ten like that's that's not okay that's not that's not normal people don't do that um but that's you know that's not the same thing and people will get upset if you if you say that sins are not all equal um you know maybe you know before god any sin is you know is infinitely sinful compared to God's holiness, but there are, there is a degree. And I feel as though we put so much emphasis on this, this purity teaching uh, that it really obscures our ability to talk about consent and rape and various forms of sexual abuse. How would you respond to that? 
Yeah, there's several things going on there. Every man's battle is so bad for this. Mm-hmm. They 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 talk about just like you said, masturbating in cars as if it's normal. And I remember reading that thinking, I've talked to several guys who've read it thinking, I am going to grow up to be a monster. Like being a yeah. man means being a monster. This is a terrible thing. They 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 talk about a a youth volunteer who rapes a 15 year old girl but she's described as being this temptress and she looked way older and she was flirty like she's basically blamed for it but the i think the central issue i i agree with what you're saying about the 10 out of 10 but i would take it a step further or maybe take it from a different standpoint but i think the central issue here is that they are viewing the main sin as a sin against his purity rather than as a sin against an individual hmm. so to them, him raping that girl, the problem is he is now no, no longer pure. It's even, it's even in um, a section on violating your neighbor's fence. It's like the sin is now, if there is a sin, it's against her father or something. I don't know, but like, she's not really the victim. And so, so throughout that book, his purity is what is at stake rather than the humanity of the women that these men are using for their own gratification. And even the way that they describe how you fight lust, um, bouncing your eyes, you can never look at a woman because that would be a sin against your purity. And so you bounce your eyes away from her. But in doing so, you are still objectifying her. You are still seeing her primarily as a sexual being. And Jesus did not refuse to look at women. Jesus chose to truly see women. And that's a huge difference. And their solution to lust does not reflect Christ at all. What their solution to lust is, is to keep objectifying women, but just do it (laughs) in a way where you're not, where where she is the one bearing the, the weight of it. So she can never be with you, like alone with you. She can never be your friend. You can never have an honest conversation with a woman because she's now dangerous. So she's now verboten or whatever. And mm-hmm. it, it, it really dehumanizes women. Um, yeah. And that's, to me, that's, that's one of the problems. So that's, that's, that's the number one problem with our conversation. But less. the number two problem is a definitional one. Um, they're describing lust and sexual attraction as the same thing. Yeah. So if you are sexually attracted to someone, you've lusted after them. That's not what Jesus said at all. Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust, so we have a deliberate action that is tied with a deliberate mindset. Noticing a woman is beautiful is not lusting. You know, noticing a woman has great breath is not lusting. (laughs) That's just having eyes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet you think about the weight that of, of this message that is put on teenage boys, just as they're going through all these hormonal changes. And then these hormonal normal body changes are now seen as inherently sinful. Like my whole being is an inherently sinful thing. And I need to find a woman who can contain all my inherent sinfulness. And, and what we actually teach, like, like every man's battle teaches men who are married that you need to transfer your sexual energy from all these other women to your wife. And it says, you know, when you quit lust, let her be like a merciful vial of methadone for you. So she's your methadone. And when you used to be going to her for five bowls of sexual gratification a week, now you're going to her for 10. So basically every time you feel any kind of lust or attraction for another woman, you have to go have sex with your wife to cure it. 
And you can just imagine what these men are like who get, like, I get letters from women who say he needs sex two or three times a day. So he doesn't lust it's because, and the reason is because he thinks every time I have a slight sexual feeling, I'm supposed to have sex with my wife Yeah. as opposed to learning that, okay, this is just normal. It's not a big deal. Okay. Yeah. I found her attractive, but now I'm going to think of her like a whole person because she's not for me. She's not my wife. I'm not going to objectify her. I'm going to choose to think of her in a different way. Hey, you know what? She's really good at taxes. You know, <laughs> like I can ask her for some advice on something and I see yeah. her as a capable human being, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's how it should be. Yeah. I feel as though yet again, there's so many things that evangelicalism, my childhood didn't prepare me for. And I have these awkward moments that should have happened when I was 12 or 13 or 14. And, and I'm still kind of like, okay, how do I actually, she's pretty, but I like, I have a question at the office. How do I, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and I definitely feel like I was driving along the street one day and there was, it's, it's a small town. People know each other. People, even if you don't know each other, like you're just friendly. Right. And, and I caught myself bouncing my eyes and I thought she probably thinks I'm weird, you know, like. Like it, it would have yeah. been normal to just kind of <laughs> smile, you know, but I'm so trained yeah. to bounce the eyes, you know, it's like, oh, she's pretty, you gotta, can't, can't look. And I appreciate what you put in yeah. this book that um, this model, which basically I memorized that book, basically, I think I read it two or three times. I had Bible studies on it. You know, people taught me that was a very yeah. much a big part of my, my adolescence. And it was the only input I had because my parents sure weren't talking about it. Um but uh, the model that they teach us is there's a woman, part one, part two, you notice her body. Oh, no, there's a slippery slope. You find her attractive. You feel tempted mm -hmm. to lust and then you lust. So it's like you got to cut it off before yeah. it starts, you know. Whereas what you're saying is there's a woman and, and you got a chart where it's just straight up and down. There's a woman. You notice her body. You find her attractive. You feel tempted to lust after her. None of this is lust. This is all just yeah. part of being a human and then you can make that mm -hmm. decision and it is a conscious decision to say i think i'm going to look again and or or i think i'm going to play out a fantasy in my mind that, that's the sin and i, I do agree that that is mm -hmm. a sin i i don't think that that's debatable mm -hmm. that that's either gross or perhaps you know most people would agree that that's sinful um but it's it's this decision to try and cut all this other stuff out when all this other stuff is just part of being human um, it, it's a little mm -hmm. bit hard to navigate sometimes, uh, and, and where exactly that line is between lust and attraction it can sometimes be difficult, but that's part of life is, is figuring that out without being awkward around people. All right, Sheila, I really appreciate everything you said. Uh, time has gotten away from me. I have so many more questions I want to ask you. Um, but one that's really important for my wife and I is how do we raise our kids? Because we were raised with this crazy purity culture mm -hmm. teaching. And then we see a lot of people that are deconstructing. They kind of swing the other way and they're just like, you know, let your kids watch pornography. They'll learn it that way and just like wear whatever they want. You know, it's kind of like, okay, well, maybe there's a middle ground, but we're not exactly sure where to find it. What kind of good parenting advice would you have? for talking to your kids about sex. Yeah, it was, it's funny. When my oldest was 13, I bought her I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which is the prototypical purity culture book. And I was so into it. And then by the so time she was 16, right 
<laughs> by the time she was 16, we had totally ditched it. And I realized how stupid it was. Um, and now it's really interesting because Rebecca, my oldest, is actually one of the co-authors on the book. She designed our survey. Okay. Um, my younger daughter, Katie, uh, edits all of my podcasts. So they're both heavily involved in what I do. My son-in-law, um, D- uh, Connor, works for me as well. And so we're always talking about like orgasms and clitoris, like everything. We talk about it. So it's really funny. So I, I am really able to talk to my kids about this. But it wasn't always like that. Um, two pieces of advice. First of all, when it comes to porn, the biggest thing we need to tell our kids, because kids get this, is just talk about it as a justice issue. Hmm. Instead of talking about it as a sin issue and everything, porn is the biggest driver of sex trafficking in the world. And even if you're consuming so-called ethical porn, there's no way you can ever know that. And it still drives the, it drives the demand for porn in general and porn dehumanizes and it objectifies. And it's most of what you're watching is someone being abused and kids understand part of that. And instead of talking about it as this big thing, that's going to lure you in, let's, let's start with the justice issue (laughs) because that's something that really does resonate and, uh, and, and when you realize you're masturbating to someone getting raped, it's like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's awful. Um, and, and I, I don't think that we use that argument enough. And, and I think that that is vitally important to me. That's the most important thing about pornography is you're actually participating in human trafficking and in the abuse of others. And so we do need to talk about that. Um, when it comes to how you talk to your kids about sex, like I, I still do believe in what I call a biblical sexual ethic as opposed to purity culture. And that I do think it's best to keep sex for marriage. The difference is I don't think sex is any greater sin than any other sin. And I think when we frame it as sin, that's where we're going. That's where, that's where we're having issues. Like when God makes these rules for us. It's not like God said, you, you shall never wear purple. And so we think, well, what about lavender? Is lilac okay? What about fuchsia? Like, what about pink? Like, how close can I get to purple before it being purple? It's not some arbitrary thing. It's about what's for our best. And I think if we can start explaining to our kids why, like, instead of saying, don't do this, let's talk the why. Let's talk wisdom. Let's talk, what do you want for your life? And let's talk, most importantly, how can you honor the person you're with? You know, because if you have sex with someone when you're 15, you don't know how that's going to affect them. Hmm. And you don't want to be the reason that someone has issues six, seven, eight years later because they did something they weren't ready for. You know, (laughs) like we need to honor the person we're with as well. So Hmm. how can we be wise How can we honor the dignity in other people? And if you do want a great marriage, how can you make sure that you're emotionally connected and that you're a good match, you know? And, and so let's not let the, and so just talking about wisdom and the why I think is the most important part of talking to your kids rather than just setting rules without telling them like the why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Lots of conversations, not just one conversation and talking about the wisdom instead of just the rules uh Mm -hmm. and talking about ethics and why uh why pornography hurts some of the most vulnerable people in the world well sheila i've really appreciated your Mm book um the great sex rescue the lies you've been taught and how to recover what god intended and i appreciate that you researched before you did this book as opposed to many other (laughs) authors who simply fly by the seat of their pants and call it biblical wisdom 
Um, where can we yeah. find you to follow? I know you're on Twitter at Sheila Gregoire, yes. I think. I follow yes. you on Twitter. Yes, Thank and Instagram. Call. Instagram, okay. Yeah, so if you want to find me, the easiest thing is to go to, to love, honor, and vacuum.com. That's honor the American way. So without the you, <laughs> um, <laughs> even though we're all Canadian here, but anyway, so to love, honor, and vacuum.com, you can get a link to our podcast, which is our bare marriage podcast is there. That's up every week. Mm-hmm. Um, all my social media links are there. My books are there. So you can find a link to the great sex rescue there and anything you want. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I hope the people uh, find your resources and find them as helpful as I have. Thank you very much for your time, Sheila. And happy birthday. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) All right, bye.